ever wonder what the Bible has to say about some of the biggest issues we face today? How do you sort through things like our political climate, social issues, and what it means to live out your faith in a dynamically changing world? How do you view these topics through Jesus' vantage point? 312 is back with our new series, Vantage Points. Join us as we discuss what the Bible has to say about some of the most pressing issues we face in our culture today. We'll also continue building a community of believers with fun events that you will not want to miss. 312, knowing God and making God known in Chicago and to the ends of the earth. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. I feel like I got a big voice talking to y'all from up here. I'm only up here because we're recording it, uh, the talk, and, and we want to make sure that there's folks who can see it. Um, this is not just a conversation about black and white uh, relationships, although in the context of our culture and our history, it looms large, and especially in Chicago. We just had a, a, an election uh, uh, happen on uh, Tuesday, and if you didn't see or notice or have a sense of racial dynamics happening under the scene and even our politics, uh, you weren't paying attention because that's Chicago. It's, it's, it's kind of it's embedded in the warp and woof of this city. And so if you live here, uh, whether or not you're talking about this, uh, this is a context in which, you know, you have been sent as a disciple of Jesus. And if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, he's calling you to into that to follow him. So I want to kind of talk through three kind of lenses in relation to the conversation, really three lenses. Uh, one is through a theological lens as we look at this idea of race, racial justice, and then uh, an ideological lens. Uh, I want us to kind of look at what's kind of happening in culture. How do we kind of orient ourselves and what we're hearing around us and navigate that? And then lastly, to uh, think about some practice, uh, like pra- like what do we do uh, in light of that? So um, uh, my goal is this. I-, I hope ultimately that walking away from tonight that you're going to see that this is an issue of discipleship. Like this is part of what we have to wrestle with if we are following Jesus. It's not sort of a, a conversation or discussion that's, you know, sort of a topic out there. It's something that actually is part of what it means for us to wrestle with being followers of Jesus. And the story that we've been drafted and grafted into uh, to, to discuss this. So uh, I want to just jump right on in. So just by, by way of uh, show of hands, I'm going to have you guys interact with me a little bit. How many of you guys, this is your first time here? Any first timers? First timers? Okay. What I want you guys to do, we're going to have you come up and just share your views on this issue. <laughs> and then we will pick it apart. All right. You're like, I'm about to run out the door here. Well, hey, we, we're gonna, we anchor ourselves in the Bible, right? We, in God's word. And this book, this book, this book that was written over 1,500 years, it spanned uh, 40 different authors contributing to it, three different continents, three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. Um, this book here... It really, it really is a culmination of a story. It's a narrative. It's a story that culminates in the person of Jesus. Like the entire Bible, it literally everything from the Old Testament points to Jesus and the New Testament, it points right to him. That's what the story's about. But if you're kind of going to categorize the Bible, and I think this is just a framework that's helpful for you as you wrestle with, as we think through any of these issues, to think of a narrative framework of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I'm going to refer back to that, those four kind of things, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, because I think it will be helpful when we're engaging in these discussions, because it helps orient where we are in the story. And so let's just kind of look at this theological framework as we start with the Bible and creation, which is really 
when we're talking about when things were as they were designed to be. And we, we have to start with the foundation because everything that we're seeing and wrestling with, everything you, every issue you're wrestling with, everything your, your coworker or your crazy uncle is saying at Thanksgiving or what you're wrestling with as you look at your friend's Twitter feed, everything is built on a foundation. And we have to kind of go back. I just want to peel us back to foundationally a starting point, a reference point. Some of the things that are very basic things that we probably or maybe some of us are very familiar with, but maybe we haven't thought about others. Maybe we just don't think about others. Maybe we haven't heard. So if you have your Bible, which you're going to have to use your Bible, turning your app, we'll look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Genesis is, called, is the book of beginning. It's the first book in the Bible. It is the story of uh, how the world came to be uh, and what God, uh, what God did to create the world, if you will. And it's so important in this, this foundational uh, beginning for us to not move past this because it, it really does shape and it really does give us a a vision for which we are created. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man, that's mankind, humans in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image and the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we can't unpack this fully tonight. Like, if you're in the academy, there was, like, an entire, like, night that was just on uh, uh, that doctrine of us being humans being created in the image of God. We can't unpack it all, but it's important that we have to take time to just note it, that this truth that is embedded in our identity as humans that we are made in God's image. This, this, this informs that we, uh, what shapes who we are, our identity, it shapes our, our, our purpose, it shapes our dignity, our inherent dignity, and our inherent value. You'll note that, it's, that this scripture, it says, God says, let's make man in our own image, and, and there's actually an elevation of humankind over the rest of creation. Now, contrary to sort of the, the working, some of the working theories, like we aren't actually on a ladder of, of humanity in terms of value and dignity. We aren't on a plane of animals and humans and trees. We're all the same. No, there's an inherent value and dignity that's been imprinted in the DNA, the very structure and personhood of every person, every human. That's so key. That is what we were designed for. That is how we are designed. That's creation. If we move forward into the story in Genesis chapter 3, though, we run into what's called the fall. The fall. And... Uh, frankly, the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we can't go through the entire story. It's essentially Adam and Eve, the first humans, are created in God's image, male and female, each of them bearing dignity, worth, purpose, value, declaring and reflecting something of the creator of the universe. But enter in God's enemy, Satan, who essentially gets them to believe otherwise. And so the story goes that they choose to rebel against God, sin against him, and subsequently, this is so important, it, it, it sows, and for the first time in creation, death and decay and deterioration enter into the cosmos, into creation. Now, God has said, if you, if you, if you rebel against me, like if you, if you don't, if you choose to not listen to me, you will die. Uh, that was part of the story. Adam and Eve, they chose to do that. And did they die physically immediately? No. But what happened was that they, 
experience death. Now, death is just a word uh, to indicate separation, death, separation from your soul from your body, separation from relationships. It's for the first time. We could unpack that in a whole t- uh, the whole time just tonight, talking about what happened in that moment. You see, for the very first time, a break in humanity's relationship with God, but not just in a relationship with God. You see humanity's break in a relationship with each other. The first argument happened after that. The first time a dude didn't take responsibility and said it was her fault happened right in that moment. And we've been seeing it happen ever since. Even creation itself began to decay. It's so important uh, to, to remember this, that in the fall, that's when things begin to decay. And not just things, actually relationships the, the, the scripture says the wage of sin is death. It says that death passed upon all humankind. It's not just that, that, that we were going to die physically, but literally the very things for which we were created begin to deteriorate and fall apart. Even in that moment, there was an assault that was unleashed on human dignity, on human identity, on human purpose, and human value. And here's, here's where it gets kind of even rougher. When we choose to rebel against God, we actually are participating in that very same thing. We sin against him and sin against each other. That's the fall. And in some sense, if you look at the world today, I don't have to argue to you that something is wrong. Like the natural bent of human relationships aren't gravitating towards unity and service and kindness. Um, uh, maybe just by show of hand, how many of you all lock your doors at night? Okay. So those of you who don't, do you have like a weapon or something on your bed? You know, all right. How many of your car doors are locked downstairs? You had to come through a security door to get into the church. Why do we have a security door on the church? What we're seeing and what we're reflecting in that reality is that we're living in a world that is, its natural bent is towards moving towards chaos, brokenness, separation, division, and such. That's the fall. That's the world in which we live. Now, if that was the end of the story, uh, it really wouldn't bode well for us to have much hope around this idea of racial diversity, racial harmony, justice of any kind. But that's not the end of the story. See, it moves forward as we talk about redemption, and that's in Genesis uh, chapter three, even where God says, "Look, you're gonna. There's gonna be a seed that comes and gonna crush the serpent." Uh, we're we, Genesis three fifteen, one of the first proto gospels, the pre gospel that it would prediction that Jesus would come, and all of the story of the Old Testament and God's people, Israel being identified, the Jews were to bring us to the point where the Messiah would be born through them. And the redemption story is all about when God takes action to redeem us, mankind, from death and decay and the sin that's brought into the world. And it's going to be ultimately accomplished through Jesus' death on the cross. And it's interesting if you look at this theme of redemption in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God is talking to Abram. Uh, He would change his name to Abraham eventually, and he's calling him. He says, I'm going to bless you a particular way. I'm going to bless you. And in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 12, he says to Abram, he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who dishonor you. But in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. See, even in the context of God creating all of humankind in his image, which means all the different people groups, even in the context of the fall where death passed upon all mankind, meaning that every single people group from all time has been touched by and impacted by death and decay, there's a plan 
that all of the people groups will experience through Jesus' redemption. Redemption. And it's funny when Jesus, not funny, but if you think about when Jesus, as he, after he died on the cross, and uh, as, as he'd rose, risen from the dead, some of his last words for his disciples were to go and make disciples of all nations. I want you, I want, what I want you to see is that this idea of racial, uh, the, the racial harmony, unity, the differences, the purposes, identities of all the people groups that God's created, they were, they're all written and woven into this thread of what he has been, the story he's been writing. And it's driving towards something. And that's called restoration. Restoration when Jesus is going to return to the earth and he's going to make all things new and make all things as they should be. And we see a glimpse of that if you look in Revelation chapter 7, uh, verses 9 and 10. You see a glimpse of what that will look like when it comes to all the different people groups. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, before Jesus, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. We see all these types of people gathered around the throne of Jesus. And it says with a loud voice, all these different languages, but it's one singular unified sound gathered together of all the peoples with complete harmony and wholeness and joy forever and ever. That is the end to which we are all moving. That is the story in which we are all participating. A big question, I think, for us to wrestle with is where are we in the story? Where are we living in the story right now? Like, isn't there something in you when you think about, like, people gathered around the throne of Jesus, all the different types of people? We got a bunch of different type of people in here, but all the different types of people that that there are unified under the banner of Jesus gathered, there's something that's like, man, I kind of want that. That's what we long for. And even within our culture, in our cultural framework, in the context of the strife, division, and the longing of the people, groups, the ideologies in our culture, you can kind of see a thread of a longing for that day. I think because it's what we're created for. I think that's for why it's one of the reasons that we long for it is because it was, it's part of reflecting us being made in God's image. But when we ask the question of where we are in the story, are we at creation? You guys tell me, are we at creation? No. Are we at restoration? So where are we living? We're living in that space where we are feeling the effects of the fall in a time of redemption. Now, it's so important that we recognize this. Now, you know, John, you mentioned just even politically some of our, uh, the political sort of structures that are kind of operating within our cultural framework. Now, you know, if you think kind of like, conservative or more liberal progressive those are those are kind of like archetypes i mean those can be very big generalizations but but kind of in, in a sense if you think of conservatism and i'm just using that as a broad term when it comes around racial dynamics or racial conversations typically there's a sense of we want to get back to something we want to get back to, if you kind of hear that language, you know, we want to go back. And so I almost kind of think of it as like, it's an attempt to try to get back into the garden. Living in the fall, redemption, 
an attempt to get back into the garden. And then if you think of even just the idea of progressive, even that, you know, live for God, it's like, hey, there's this idea of like, no, where we are is not satisfactory. We've got to get to a place where there is justice and righteousness, or not righteousness, justice and equity. And there's a longing to get to that one day where Jesus will restore all things. Well, that's the way I might describe where those can be problems is if you want to get back to the garden without the gardener, that's going to be a problem. If you want to get to the kingdom and the fruits of the kingdom, but you don't want the king, that's going to be a problem. Matter of fact, if you look at what the enemy, Satan, attempted to do to deceive Adam and Eve, what he wanted to offer them was a life of fulfillment and joy and power apart from God's rule. And you, this is, in whether, wherever you land sort of like on your political experience or perspective or spectrums and things, I really think interrogate whatever your camp is, interrogate, is there an attempt to get back to the garden without the gardener? Is there an attempt to get to the kingdom without the king? And I think there's something in that that can actually help us in our, in our, in our practice. Um, when we talk about these things. Now, I do think it's helpful just for some terms. Um, we talked about, John introduced that this is all about racial, racial justice. I think it's just helpful to maybe have some things in mind. Uh, some terminology, nationality, for example. Like some of us have different nationalities. Anyone who did not, who was not born in the United States, go ahead, raise your hand. Just, it's okay. Look, all right, we got some folks who were not born in the United States. Nationality might have to do with your citizenship and sort of what your home country is. But then we have a term that we'll use and we'll talk about ethnicity. You know, you might have a, you might be Indian nationally or you might be Indian ethnically. But then what about your culture? What about your culture? Have you ever thought about what your culture is? Now, I, I hope I'm not going to, I don't want to offend anyone here, but just pressing into that because we're in a community, typically people who have to think about their culture are people who don't fit into a culture. You have to learn how to navigate. You have to learn how to fit into whatever the sort of the, the, the natural flow is. So for some of my brothers and sisters who have a, a pink shade like my wife. Oftentimes, we're not aware that we actually have a culture. And what's interesting, and maybe some of you run into this as you kind of get into these conversations, uh, no one likes to be sort of just defined by, you are identified by what you look like, and that defines your nationality, your heritage, your culture, your ethnicity. We got any white people who don't feel like they fit into white culture? Come on, just raise your hand. It's okay. You're like, I'm, I'm, I'm white, but like, I'm, you know, you're telling me, what am I? My wife, she's a white girl, but she, she's actually ethnically Polish, okay? But she's culturally Latina. People think she's Puerto Rican. She speaks Spanish fluently. We have Arroca Gandules at home. We are, our friend group, she grew up, like, her friend said, it, it was like, Gabrielle, and then like her Latina friends. That's just, so culturally, if you look at her, it's like, oh, that's a white girl. Well, that doesn't really define her. And I don't think any of us like to be defined that way, right? I certainly don't want, don't want you looking at me saying like, that's a black man and then filling in a blank of what you saw on TV the last 20 years. Unless it's like Fresh Prince. <laughs> Peacock version. Anyway, some of y'all got that. Um, even within, so this context, context of, of culture, but then we talk about race, which is just a fascinating term. Uh, race, and it, it actually even a user term. I actually, I resisted using the term. I was like writing this talk, and I was like, I don't want to use the term race. Because something in me was like, where does that even come from? Like, 
race is inherently, there's already something like, if I say, hey, let's talk about your culture, it's like everybody's kind of at ease. Let's talk about your nationality. Well, we can talk about that. It's kind of definable. Even your ethnic background, you know. We got any Dutch people in here? Anybody Dutch? All right. Talk about white culture, right? You got all a bunch of white people, but if you ain't Dutch, you ain't. Oh, so y'all believe that. Okay, we caught you. Right? Yeah, go Grand Rapids and the Van Hoekstra's and all y'all. Anyway. Spoolstra's. Anyway, so... We talk about culture, ethnicity, nationality, and this is all part of this like storyline that we're in of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're living in the context of we're feeling the effects of the fall. We're living in that right now. We're living in the moment where Christ has come and he has offered redemption. He's died and rose again and redemption's offered and we could respond to it. But when we talk about that term race, immediately it's tethered into the fall. And if we kind of particularize it to our national story within the framework of the West, the Western American experience, and certainly Southern slavery, race was a concept that was embedded into the culture to hierarchically categorize the worth and dignity of peoples. And some of the things I think that we wrestle with today are anchored in some of those realities. You guys remember, you know, actor Matthew McConaughey? McConaughey? Anybody? So uh, you guys are young adults, so I'm a little older than you, but there's a uh, a movie, I think it was in the 90s, it was a Time to Kill. Anybody saw a Time to Kill? I think it was a John Gresham wrote it. But uh, So this storyline, and it was Sam, it starts Samuel L. Jackson before Samuel like got cleaned up. So it's like, it's like the Samuel L. Jackson, he looks like the crack addict Samuel L. Jackson. Kind of crazy. But he, he his daughter, uh, the movie starts out, his daughter uh, is... Uh, his like little girl, she's like maybe six, seven years old, um, around that age, and she, she is brutally murdered. And it's in this southern town, and there's a trial, and I believe it was the the suspect uh, was a Caucasian guy, and so it's in southern back in the South, and so it's like Matthew McConaughey is the lawyer that's working on behalf of this black family whose daughter's been brutalized and murdered. And all of the evidence indicates that this murderer is going to be exonerated. He's not going to be convicted. And if you've seen the movie, there's this moment in the movie where Matthew McConaughey, in some of his best acting, he takes on the role and he tells the story to the jury. This, I think it's predominantly, it's like an all-white jury. And he goes, look, he tells a story, walks them through the story. And the, the movie changes when he says to the jury, I want you to imagine that, what hap- that, this, that this little girl was white. And you just kind of see the entire jury, like they've resisted sort of all the evidence beforehand. At that moment, it's like the entire movie, everything led up to that moment in the movie where everything shifts and they begin, they from that point go into the jury room and they convict the murderer. But it wasn't until they conceptually had moved past this hierarchical view of value and dignity and worth. And then things change. So race is a, it's, it's sort of a concept or construct that has really affected our modern psyche and certainly affected the way that people see themselves and how we see each other. Like if we could do like a little running sort of, you know, you know, the ticker tape of just your thoughts. 
There's some people when you walk by in Chicago, you're like, valuable, somewhat valuable, very valuable. We do that. Are we going to be honest tonight or no? All right. If we're not careful, if we're not conscious, we will do that. It's, it's sort of built into the fabric of the brokenness in our, our, our culture. Uh, and certainly that's been challenged. That has been challenged uh, in, in a lot of ways. That's not, uh, it's not just a given, but it's something that has been written into the storyline of our context. And, and what we've watched over the number of years, which we, we really, I just have to say this, and this is part, this is my appeal to my younger brothers and sisters. And this may sound, sound extreme. What happened to George Floyd in 2020 was not the most egregious thing that's happened in the storyline and history of this country. It was terrible. But that wasn't like, oh my gosh, stuff like that happens. Um, if, we're, if, we, if we kind of read our history and like, not sort of sensationalizing, but just like actually just read our history of the place that we call America, we will see stories of frightening and horrific brutality that is unthinkable. And I can say that saying that, look, uh, I'm glad I live here. This is a wonderful, this place has a lot of opportunity that I would not have, and this is just me as a black man, I would not have some opportunities in other places in the world if I didn't live here. Uh, I have family who have served in the military, who actually served, uh, who've died for this country from the Civil War all the way up to Vietnam War. I'm grateful that I live here. I have opportunities here, but that does not mean what happened didn't happen. And we don't have to be defensive about that, right? We can tell the story. You know, that's one thing I love about the Bible. If you read the Bible, God's people, the Jews, uh, the story tells about Israel. It doesn't like cut like out like the bad parts. It's like he loved God with all his heart and he killed someone. It's just like, man, he was brutal. Uh, It talks, it really is the scripture. That's one of the things I love about it is that it just kind of keeps it real about the story. Um, So in our cultural context, when we talk about race, we talk about justice, it's almost, they're almost inextricable. They're all, it's really, when you talk about race and justice in our context, it's really hard to disentangle them because they're so wedded. Because the idea of race was built off of a construct of injustice. That some people were not created in the image of God. Some types of people are worth less than others. Some people are on the plane of animals and cattle, and others are not. So for my friends uh, in the room who maybe you, you wrestle with, why is there such a, uh, an angst and this you know, sort of cacophony of longing and noise for justice, and you wonder, why are people complaining? This is so, there's so much opportunity. There's so many uh, things to celebrate. I would just encourage you, just maybe step back and understand that there's a context in which this story has been playing itself out. On the other side of things, when we talk about race and justice, I think it's helpful to understand that and, and helpful to remind ourselves that that construct of race, which is built off a hierarchy of people being valued based on their, often their skin color. Um, That isn't the whole story in defining all of what identifies us in humanity. We have culture. Uh, 
We have nationality. We have language. We have different ethnicities. And, and, and so in some ways, as I think about even some of you who, aren't, who haven't been born here, as you come into a context like the context of the storyline of America, and maybe your parents immigrated here, maybe you immigrated here, and you've like, you know, I came here, I had to work, I had to do my best, I didn't look like everybody, I had to figure out how to fit into the culture and learn a new language, and so you look around like, okay, the storyline of everything being defined by racial hierarchy and injustice doesn't make sense. It's not the whole story. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Do we let it define us? Do we ignore it? I think either of those are insufficient. Uh, I love what uh, some of the things that have been helpful for, for me, thinking about Mark Rogop. He has a book called Weep With Me. Uh, just a, 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 a book to help understand how do we get about and go about racial reconciliation. And he gives kind of four things to love, which is uh, agape love. It's this unconditional, have a mindset of others driven, doing for others what's best for them, despite what it costs you. First Corinthians 13, four to seven talks about and describes that kind of a love. Love is patient, it's kind, long-suffering, believes all things, hopes all things. That kind of an orientation of our life where that's others-oriented. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's that kind of supernatural love. Uh, Then two, he says, listen, which is, I just think in, in the context of the culture that we're in, probably one of the greatest tools that we can apply is to be able to actually listen to one another. James 1.19 says this, know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Let every person be quick to hear. They should put slow to tweet, slow to anger. You know, I think about uh, just in terms of just that idea of listening and five levels of communication. You guys familiar with the different kinds of levels of communication? There's kind of that cliche, how you doing? Fine. What was your day like? Good. Uh, And then you kind of go down different levels where you actually move past like, you know, just cliche things to sharing facts, to sharing feelings, to deep emotions. If you haven't learned that or studied that, that would be really good. It'd just be good. It'd be good for your relationships. Uh, because, for example, uh, in our culture, we tend to hover at the level of sharing at a cliche level or fact level or opinion level. You know, so someone comes to you and says, um, you know, I think, I think that Black Lives Matter is a great organization we should support. Is that an opinion? Yes. We're good at that. And then if you don't agree with that, no, I don't think it's a great, I don't think it's a great organization. It's a Marxist organization that is not rooted in the gospel and is ultimately wants to destroy the country. Now, these are real things. I'm just talking like the things I've actually heard, right? Uh, and you guys can ask me in the Q&A what I think about Black Lives Matter as an organization. I want you to ask that question. I really do. Right, that's, that's sort of opinion. And we tend to, in our opinions, uh, that's, that's probably the deepest that we actually tend to hover in our cultural context. And as you get from cliche to facts to opinions, the volume tends to grow up louder, louder. Now, if someone comes to you and they say, hey, look, I'm feeling really sad because my mom just died. Communication level, 
you've gone from, that's not like just, she's not just sharing a fact. They're not just sharing an opinion. They're actually now sharing vulnerably into what's going on in the soul. Now, what would happen if I, as a pastor, you came up and you said, I'm just, Pastor Nate, I'm just feeling so terrible. I'm missing my mom. She passed away. And I say, you know what? 30% of moms died in, in, 30% of moms died before the age of 70. And it's actually a true fact. What would you do? Come on, be honest. Some of y'all would be like, look, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to act like a Christian right now. And Pastor Payne would have a, have a palm slap right in the back of his head. Um, see, I, I, if, I meet, if I meet you in my communication at the level at which you are communicating, or if I miss that, we're going to actually not be communicating. And you think about like what in the conversation, this is with your friends in the context of the church. And this has happened, I think, uh, a, a number of times. And we talk about this particular issue because there's so many, you know, facts aren't feelings. You heard that before? <laughs> facts over feelings. Um, like there's something to like wrestle with that, right? Like I feel like I should be paid a million dollars a year. Y'all be like, you know, Pastor Payne, there's a church for you somewhere, but it ain't here. Facts over feelings, right? But there is a reality that when we're sharing at a level uh, with the heart, and particularly around these issues that have so many opinions, so many facts being thrown around, so-called facts being thrown around, so many opinions being thrown around, that when people are sharing their soul, we should meet them where they are. And that, that in of itself, it doesn't even mean that we have to agree. If we can just do that, and that's primarily in the context of our relationships, that would go a long way to helping us actually hear one another and work together. But what does that require? What happens if someone has an opinion about something, but they share their feelings? If you have to be right, your drive will be to correct where they're wrong and not meet them what they're feeling. Now, that's more of in the language of practice and how we can like actually relate to one another. And that, that's something that you can kind of see would work in the context of our individual relationships, but even kind of on a broader scale our culture doesn't have space for that. We're living in the fall. We're living in this age where, uh, where things aren't as they were, where we are designed as humans to be able to relate with one another in such a way where we can be vulnerable, where we can express the deepest parts of who we are, be seen, received, known, and loved anyway. But we don't live in that. So as a Christian... In order to live that way, it will require us to sacrifice. Like Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're basically going to have to die every day. Every day. Not just like, okay, one day people are going to ask you, are you a Christian? They're going to hold a gun to your head. No, like every day, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to lay down your urge to be right, lay down your urge to prove your point. To listen like that is going to require self-denial. And that doesn't mean just for those of us who have a lighter hue, that means for all of us. Do you all know that there's people in our church who have sent me some pretty nasty texts? Do you all know that? Um, and I mean, like, yeah, they, they sent some pretty fiery and nasty texts. And the natural inclination, uh, certainly, like, you know, we don't want to affirm something that would be true that's not true. But in terms of just the orientation of my heart, I'm a follower of Jesus. And whether someone has an opinion, that doesn't change my value. Like, I got my value from what Jesus said about me. But 
I'm still called to love my neighbor as myself. The hardest people to love are the knuckleheads in your life who don't want to listen. Can I get an amen? And don't elbow them if they're sitting right next to you. Our culture doesn't have space for that because they haven't experienced redemption. They haven't experienced that we have actually received the work of what Christ has done on the cross where he died and laid down his life for his enemies. So we live that out even to love our enemies. So we listen, we learn, we're committed to learning something from each other, meaning we understand that there's something that others have that I need, that I need to understand and grow. Requires us to have humility. Love, listen, learn, and then leverage. And that means leverage is taking action on behalf of others for their good, to seek the good of others for their sake. When it comes to like race in America and the context we're in, when it comes to these kind of conversations within the church, if you really kind of like get down to it, some of the most horrific things that have happened, some of the, some of the injustices that we perpetuate or some of the injustices that we either ignore really come down to us asking the question, are we willing to lay down what's good for us in order for someone else to have what's best for them? And y'all, I don't have, I'm not up here to tell you like here's 15 things that you gotta do. That's not going to happen unless there's like, a, there's, there's like a fundamental like decision as a disciple of Jesus that my life is not about me. So leverage. Encourage that when we're wrestling with these issues to be compassionate, be truthful when we run into those people who are either trying to get back to the garden without the gardener or who are trying to get and longing for the kingdom without the king. In his book, um, David Swanson is a pastor in Chicago. He actually had a book called Rediscipling the White Church. And I'm mentioning that book not because I endorse everything in it. I actually don't agree with everything in it. And so just so you know, like this is not a, this book, read it, has everything that we, you know, I agree with. There's, there's things that just, and, and particularly ways that help us kind of think about how we think about these issues, some barriers that might be helpful to confront for us do we approach these conversations this conversation with a mindset of individualism like it's just like what i do personally and how i relate with people individually that can be a barrier because we're not aware of the context in which we're actually functioning or just thinking like if i just have some friends of another culture or race then that's going to actually move us forward to, you know, uh, that vision, that restoration vision. Um, you know, I ha- we, we have a team of folks who call it the Gospel Race and Culture Teams. A couple of them are here tonight who are part of Park Near North. Some of them are members, have been here for a long time. And I, can, I remember uh, specifically this one particular sister who her ethnic and cultural background and identity is very very strong. But she also knows how to fit in to a broader culture. And I was talking with her, this is several months ago, I was talking with her and I was just asking her, I was like, so tell me a little bit about like your culture, like her family, I mean, this is like language, culture, celebrations, traditions. It's very, like a very rich and distinct culture. And I remember talking to her, I was just like, and, and, and I asked her, so why doesn't that? Sh- why don't you bring that into the life of the church? And sort of her reaction was like, my natural inclination is just to sort of fit in, right? So even if you are friends with her, 
you might be friends with her and say, I have a friend who is, I'm not going to say her ethnicity because I don't want to identify her, who is fill in the blank of a particular ethnicity and culture, but you might not actually know her because you haven't pressed into appreciating and celebrating that piece of her culture. And as a church, as a, as a followers of Jesus, as, as people who are in the storyline who've been redeemed, if we're followers of Jesus, who are going to be at that one day around the throne, remember that restoration vision said every nation, tribe, and tongue, the cultures and the cultural identities are going to be present there. They're not going to be supreme. Jesus is going to be supreme. But in some way, shape, or form, they will be present. It's not assimilation in heaven. It's all of the different peoples. And so on this side of things, my encouragement is for us to begin to live towards that vision in the here and now, which means that we have to be aware of our cultural and ethnic makeup, not be ashamed of that, but to bring that together in a unified way to reflect to the city that we live in, reflect to the world we live in. Not that we're all the same, but that we're all one because of the king that we serve. So I hope that one day, uh, Park Near North, even as it already is, but will be even more so, will, as the Lord has been leading us, will continue to reflect and be a place where multiple types of people walk into this church with their culture, with their national identity with their ethnic identity and walk in, meet Jesus, meet you, meet us, and feel like it's home. Growing together as disciples of Jesus in community, joyfully living life, worshiping him, and being on mission alongside one another as we proclaim to a world that one day King Jesus is going to come and make things right. With that, I want to invite you all to pray. God, just thanks for this group. Thanks for just the ways that you are working in and through them, Lord. Thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, your son, came, died for our sins suffered injustice so that we might have justice and rose from the dead and offers us new life that we might be Lord brought to that day where we'll be around your throne and God in the meantime while we're waiting and working and serving and loving others who are different than us others with different circumstances than us God we pray that we would reflect the redemptive work that you've done in our lives and that you are doing among us and through us so that ultimately you would be exalted, Jesus, because it's all about you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.